Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 7. That is page 871 on, in your pew Bible. It will be helpful to have your Bible open to Isaiah 7 as I will cover this whole chapter. I do have just a few verses, though, to lead with that I'll read at the beginning of this time we have together to unpack uh, Isaiah. In the opening chapters of Isaiah, the first five chapters, we have from the prophet a sweeping view of the situation in Judah and Israel at this time. Isaiah ministered for over 50 years. He began his ministry when the kingdom was split in two, as it had been since the days of Solomon's son. The northern kingdom, also known as Ephraim or Israel, and there was the southern kingdom, known as Judah or Jerusalem, identified by their capitals. You'll hear these labels interchange. It can be difficult sometimes to remember who we're talking about. Even when I'm preaching it, I'll say Isaiah, I'll say Israel, and you might think, does he mean the northern kingdom, or does he mean Israel, the remnant of Israel, or Judah? So it's challenging. Listen close, and hopefully I won't confuse you more. But Isaiah ministers over a 50-year period while the northern kingdom still has sovereignty, certain amount of autonomy, has made all sorts of alliances to try to keep themselves secure and safe. The southern kingdom is tempted with the same kind of thing. And then during the middle of the book, you actually have reference to the northern kingdom being completely taken by Assyria. In the first five chapters, give us a picture of how the people of God as a whole have given themselves over to other gods and other nations. And we get this parable to close chapter 5 of a vineyard that was prepared perfectly to succeed, but yet it gave out wild fruit. And so God allowed it to be overrun, even caused it to be overrun as judgment. Then chapter 6 gives us the commissioning of Isaiah the prophet. He tells us how it is that God came to him in a vision He saw God high and lifted up, and he responds uh, with acknowledgement of his sin and his need for cleansing. God cleanses him, and then he goes to bring God's message, a difficult message, to the people of God. Now we come to chapter 7. It's almost like he goes back to the beginning of his ministry now because it happens within the first couple years of his prophetic calling that we have the episode before us in chapter 7. So the northern kingdom is still somewhat sovereign in the southern kingdom is seeing what is going on there and now there is an alliance that is trying to be made between Syria not Assyria Syria a smaller kingdom with Israel to conquer Judah so that they together might be able to stave off Assyria let me just read the middle verses of our passage that are listed on your outline as we begin together listening now to God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son 
and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, once again we come to your holy word for clarity and direction. We need clarity about who you are and who we are. We need clarity about what is true. But Lord, we need more than knowledge of the truth. We need to know how to think and how to live in light of that truth. Indeed, O Lord, as we study this passage in Isaiah, show us what is true and what to do. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There is as a basic understanding or proposition to this text very clearly that crises will come into our lives. There is a crisis that happens here with Judah. They are faced with a real challenge, a real desperate situation. And that is common for all of us, and we can see how what we learn from their reaction and their interaction with God, how we might also react and act. It's true for all of us. Crisis gives an opportunity for us to trust God and see that he is with us. I can give you many examples, but one that is very sensitive to us and fresh for us is a crisis we have dealt with as a church, as dear families in our church have dealt with. And I think it illustrates this exact point, and that's why I bring it up. Crisis gives us the opportunity to trust God and see that he is with us. I will never forget, it was July of 2014, just this last, not this summer, the last summer, we were coming back from a family reunion, and Tammy Schumann called me. She had a test that came back irregular. Now, my normal response when people tell me what appears like it could be serious is I try to sit back for a moment. I'm a generalist. I think to myself, okay, there's lots of cases where doctors will give tests that we've had in the church, and they don't end up being extreme results. In fact, the majority don't end up that way, honestly. We always feel when it's us in the test that it's going to be that, but really, people are going to test all week. You'll, ten of you will probably go to a test this week for the doctor, and you won't get terrible news or what we perceive as really bad news. So I remember just talking her through and saying, you know, let the test play out. It may not, it's probably not as serious as you're thinking. Now, I wasn't the only one because we got together when I got back. Uh, her family and friends were all telling her the same thing. I'm sure all of us were concerned, but we were thinking, okay, it's probably going to be okay. But within days, things just flipped. It went from going in for discomfort to literally, within a week, stage four cancer. How could this be? We were thinking to ourselves, this crisis, and it overwhelmed everybody involved. And even her for a moment, but I will tell you something, and this is where this concept comes in to play. Crisis brings an opportunity, like no other thing, to help us trust God. Not only just trust God for just whatever, but also to sense that he is with us. There may be no other way that we sense the reality of him being with us than through crisis. She committed early on in the process to give this whole thing to God. The whole journey would be about what he would do through it. She said it verbally over and over again, and even in the midst of this crisis, saw this as an opportunity to trust God in a new way. And it brought other people to trust God in a new way and see that he is with us. 
So when we come to this passage and we try to imagine the crisis that was facing Judah as they saw the world around them closing in on them from the north, when they saw their security, their stability, their safety starting to waver in a road, they were in crisis mode for sure. Now, maybe you are wondering, as we have studied this, why is it that God's bringing judgment on Judah like this? Why is he moving judgment towards the northern kingdom so swiftly, it seems? I mean, what are they doing that's so bad? I mean, there are rising nations in the world, and they're pressing upon them, and they're just making treaties. I mean, they're just trying to make some deals to buy themselves some more security. On the surface level, that just seems kind of wise, really, right? What bothers God so much about what's happening here? Well, we have to go back to when God called Israel out as his people. He called them with the purpose of being the host nation for the Messiah. Now, that's revealed over time. We don't learn that right away. So he promises to Abraham to make them a distinct people. And then he keeps them, even in their time in Egypt, they're being incubated into a nation of over 2 million people when they're, they come out in the Exodus. Uh, they, at that time, had people and he gave them law and he was leading them to a land to make them distinct among the nations. The idea was for the nations to look at Israel and see who they were and their purity and how God had delivered them and the nations would look to Israel for salvation. That was the human looking plan on the outside, but we know what happens. Israel, the nation, fails over and over again. It, end up, it ends up where Israel is ultimately showcased through one Israelite. Jesus fulfills what the nation could not fulfill. But in Exodus, with no mistake to be made, God speaks through Moses to the Israelites, this newly formed nation who had come out of Egypt. Listen to what Moses says. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. So God says through Moses to make no provision for other gods religions or worship or devotion. Later in the same chapter, through Moses, God says, do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. For all of Joshua's wonderful leadership in the conquest, he did not follow God's plan entirely. And they did not take down those high places in those little sections of protected areas where there were other gods being worshipped. They did not follow God's command exactly. And that grew over time. Then in Exodus 34, God speaking through Moses says, Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Their disobedience to this command had built to the point that we are opening the text. It's not as though this just happened overnight, now God's acting. Over the years, they had failed to follow God's commands, and they had become more and more assimilated into the other nation's practices. The exact thing God told them not to do, they did. In the north, it was just happening faster there than it was in the south. And now, Judah's in crisis. The north is already given over to judgment, even though they weren't sure of it yet. You know, there are various ways in which crises come into our lives these seemingly desperate situations that we find ourselves in. Now, sometimes it's our fault. You might argue that's the case here for Israel and Judah. Other times, it's simply a matter of circumstances. It could be someone else's fault. Or we could be in crisis because we live in a fallen world and things happen outside of any person's control. The crisis of Judah 
brought upon themselves is an opportunity, though, for them to trust God and see that he is with them. Let's look at the passage starting at verse 1 of chapter 7, where we see the fear of man driving decisions. And when the fear of man is what drives our decisions, when it's the basis for our decision-making, it's always terrible. It never turns out well. It says in verse 1, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. So, you have Rezin, who is the king of this smaller kingdom of Syria, and you have Pekah, who is the northern king at that time. They had already been in alliance themselves. They were thinking, no doubt, that if they could capture Judah in the southern kingdom, they could turn the whole unified nation against to defend against Assyria, the unquestionable reigning, moving force in the world at that time. So the northern kingdom had already succumbed to the fear of man. They were more afraid of Assyria than they were of God, and they believed that Assyria was more a threat than God's promises were effective. So despite all that God had promised the unified nation of Israel, how he would keep a people for himself, how he would push their enemies out from before them if they would be faithful, instead of that, they feared man and they aligned with the Syrians, who were enemies of God in their faith and worship. They were more scared of what man could do to them as compared to what God could. We have introduction to the king of Judah in this passage also, who is at this time Ahaz. You remember that the book begins with Uzziah dying. That's chapter 6, the commissioning of Isaiah. Uzziah dies. But Uzziah was very sick for the last five to ten years of his life with leprosy for judgment, a judgment from God because of his disobedience. His son Jotham actually functioned in his stead while he was still alive. Then when Uzziah died, Ahaz was only king for one year or excuse me, Jotham was only king for one year. Then Ahaz took over and reigned for 16 years. So this is likely at the very beginning of Ahaz's 16-year reign, in the first few years, right after Isaiah receives the vision that he gets in 6. So now they are facing the threat of the north and Syria coming to take them. The fear of man is besetting. It already took the north. What would Ahaz have as a response. Look at verse 2. When the house of David was told, the house of David is another description of the southern kingdom. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. What a description of their reaction, their fear of man gripping them to the point of shaking like the leaves of the trees in the forest. If you've ever been on a fall day, in a windy fall day, uh, among the trees, when the trees are starting to fall off and they're rustling against each other, they're starting to get crisp even on the branch, and it's, it's so loud you can't even hear yourself. The shaking is fierce. And that is a description of how scared Ahaz was concerning the threat of man. 
on full display the fear of man. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Remember when the voice of the Lord spoke in the temple in the vision? It shook the foundations. But what shakes Ahaz? Man. It's not the vision of Isaiah that shakes him up. Remember the vision of Isaiah, because that is the picture of God that should override all our feelings of fear about man. It's God who is sitting on the throne, as Isaiah saw him, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple, and angels all around saying, holy, holy, holy is he, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I mean, that's who we ought to be fearing. To the point that the prophet himself says, Woe is me, I am ruined. I am undone. I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's the vision of God that will ever make us unafraid of man. But that's not the vision that Ahaz had. When man is rightly aligned with God... There should be no fear of man. Moyer says that the real issue was not one of military muscle or political cleverness in creating defensive alliances, but whether the Lord could be trusted to do what his word promised. That's the problem with Judah at this time. They weren't rightly aligned with God. They did not have the same vision of God that Isaiah depicts in chapter 6. So we have the reaction of Ahaz and the people when the prospect of Syria and Israel attacking was so real. Making decisions based on the fear of man is always, always a bad thing. It never turns out well. Fear is a powerful emotion, one of the most powerful. When we view man as elevated, our view of God decreases, and the fear of man causes us to betray God or forget God is real. You know, the most commonly experienced example of the fear of man causing us to make bad decisions is that of peer pressure. I mean it to the students who deal, the young people who deal with peer pressure on a regular basis, but I mean it for every one of us. We're under pressure from our peers in all levels. We're under the pressure of those who are at work with us, those in our neighborhood, those in our social groups, those at school with us. We're under peer pressure. And it's the fear of man that makes us feel this pressure. It's the fear that someone won't like us if we don't do something a certain way or we don't dress a certain way or look a certain way. That's peer pressure and that's the fear of man. And the fear of man, when it gets into us, it makes us, it causes us to make the worst decisions. What good decision have you ever made on the basis of peer pressure? Knowing Ahaz and Judah were heavy laden under the fear of man, God sends Isaiah to give his word to Ahaz. Look at verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Isaiah's son. His name means a remnant shall return. So 
embodied in his son is a reminder of the promise of God to lift up a remnant out of this nation, which eventually would bring Messiah. And he's called to meet in a place of vulnerability for Judah. It's a place where the water supply originated. Let's continue. Look at verse 4. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. So these two powers that has Ahaz so stressed out, God's description of them, they're smoldering stumps of firebrands. They're just stumps and they're fading. They are a, a power on decline, and you're worried about them. Do not worry about them. In fact, I love how this is said to Ahaz. Be careful. Don't say anything. Just be quiet. And do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria, the son of Ramaliah. Because Syria and Ephraim and the son of Ramaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Uh, They were giving the alliance exactly what they wanted. They were terrified. And let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Uh, They wanted to unify it so they could become of greater power, so they could stave off Assyria. And God says to Isaiah, you tell Ahaz, just be quiet. Stop being scared. Stop letting your heart run away from this. This alliance is nothing. It'll be over before you know it. Moyer says also very wisely that the issue is as clear-cut as this. Will Ahaz seek salvation by works, that is politics, alliances with God-hating nations, or by simply trusting in divine promises? A very strong statement about their enemies is given to Isaiah to relay to Judah in order to alleviate their fears as a way to promise them something to build up their strength in this crisis. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from, the pe- from being a people. These people that you're so scared of, they'll be gone. Within, within a generation, you won't even know who they are. In fact, to this day, we only know the northern kingdom is what? The lost tribes of Israel. So it is that both Syria and Israel are taken by Assyria eventually. God tells Judah not to fear man, but to trust God. Look at verse 9. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. You see what he's saying? Of course, the Bible never speaks of faith apart from the only one who has the ability to hold our faith, God. So whenever he talks of faith, especially a a biblical writer, he's talking about faith in God. So if you are not firm in your faith in God at this moment, you will not be firm at all. The reason why the northern kingdom wavered every time a threat came is they did not have their faith in God. Their faith was in man, and their fear was in man. And so they hesitated whenever man threatened, and they weren't trusting God, so they acted rashly, and they did things that were unwise, and they were wobbly, and they were 
flopping one direction, flipping to the other direction, and they were constantly changing. That's what happens when you're not firm in faith. You won't be firm at all. Every political season, I see this truth come out. People can say seven years ago that they are convicted about this reality. This is what's true. This is how we should go. This is what we do. Seven years later, they're saying the exact opposite. That's because if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you don't trust God, you will be wobbly every time a threat comes. If you fear man, you will lose your head when opposition arises. If you fear what other people can do more than what God can do, you will make weak, cowardly, and unwise decisions. When we think other people dictate our actual security, we will do some incredibly foolish things just to save our hide. God says have faith in him. Because if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. God gave some immediate assurance to Ahaz about their future. This threat will not be a threat. He also teaches us something else by allowing the northern kingdom to go into exile. The people of God are not defined by ethnicity. They're defined by the faith that God gives them. Oh, it took form. It was housed in a nation at one time, but it was still by faith that the true Israel was Israel. No faith, no people. That's why we learn in the New Testament that those who have faith in Christ, they are the true sons of Abraham. Let's look at how God further assures his people. Not just his people in the day of Ahaz, the king, but for us today. We see how the promise, the word of God, gives courage and hope. Starting in verse 10. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol. That is the grave is the way the Hebrews thought of it. And not just six feet like into the earth. A deep, deep way. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, this sounds like a pious, holy answer on Ahaz's part, but it really is just manifesting his long, uh, his cold faith, his cold belief in God. Remember, Isaiah is talking to him, not God directly, so he is putting off a bit the offer of Isaiah to help him. And God found their lack of faith wearying. He proves himself over and over and over again to the Israelites, yet at the sign of opposition from mere men, they start shaking like the leaves on a tree when the wind blows. Verse 13, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And what we have here in this passage that we all know from Advent season is a context for it. We also have here an example of an immediate word of encouragement given to a particular king at a particular time, yet another promise made for God's people of all ages. So there's an immediate promise to Ahaz that these people will not be the threat you think they are. But then there's a greater promise made for the Christian 
for people of God of all time, the Christians, that there will be one who will come, and this will be the sign, this is how you'll know who it is, who will give you ultimate deliverance from a far, far more powerful enemy than the fading Syrians and Israelites. We have a classic picture of immediate prophecy and remote prophecy. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Look at that verse closely. It's different than the other particular wordings that God gives to Isaiah. Therefore, the Lord himself, notice this, the Lord himself will give you a sign. He won't give it through a prophet. He himself will give you a sign, an indicator, uh, a signifying that his will will now be done in the way he has forecasted it. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, what I'm going to say now is extremely profound. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name something that only God could be called. Emmanuel, God with us. You see, Israel will fail over and over and over and over again. And this is what causes Jesus himself to weep at how Israel rejects their God. But the faithful Israelite, Jesus, is faithful because he is God with us. And God will send this sign. And you'll know because a virgin will conceive. And commentators have argued about the use of the particular Hebrew word here for centuries. Why is it that they use this word? Because it's a general word that can be used to depict a, a young woman. But when you see it in its context, when it's used, it always means an unmarried virgin woman. That's what it means. In fact, that's why the New Testament writers use the Greek word to describe this Hebrew word as virgin. So that's why it's such an amazing sign that God would do this miraculous thing through a virgin, give a son who will be called God with us. This is why the gospel writer Matthew says, and listen to this, hopefully with new ears. Matthew 1, 20 and following, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, not just from the Syrians, or the Israelites, or the Assyrians, or the Babylonians, or the Persians, or the Greeks, or the Romans. He will save his people from their sins. All this took place. This is what Matthew says. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God for us. Who will do this? The Lord himself. It says, conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. The Lord himself will give you this sign. The promise of God to Ahaz about the eventual fall of Syria in Israel gave Judah hope in the near term. But the promise of God to send Emmanuel gives the generations to follow a reminder of the Messiah that God would send the anointed one to deliver us from our sins, a deliverance we need far more than deliverance from man. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
We have in verses 15 to 17 a picture of Emmanuel that matches the reality of Jesus' eventual life perfectly. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. I mean, they're, they're not even a thought by the time of Jesus. Calvin said very wisely, Whenever God assisted his ancient people, he at the same time reconciled them to himself through Christ. And accordingly, whenever famine, pestilence, and war are mentioned, in order to hold out a hope of deliverance, he places the Messiah before their eyes. For what did the deliverance of Jerusalem depend on but the manifestation of Christ? This was, as he notes rightly, this was indeed the only foundation on which the salvation of the church has always rested the manifestation of Christ. How could this prophecy that was made 740 years before Jesus was born, how could this comfort someone living in Judah at that time? The same way the hope of heaven comforts you. You know it's coming, and you know it's real, and that gives you power to live now. You don't know when it's going to come. You hope it's a long time from now. But it'll come like that. And they may not have seen the fulfillment of the prophecy. Being God's people, their faith, his faithful remnant, those who are faith would hear the message of God's victory and they would care more about the glory of God being manifested on the earth that they would be encouraged when they hear that at some point everybody on earth is going to stop acting like Israel and they're going to glorify God. That's what they look forward to. And so a prophecy that took 700 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years to be fulfilled would not matter to the person of faith just to know their God would be vindicated. That would be enough. That should encourage us. Now, let's get down to everyday life. The promises of God have the effect of confronting our fear of man. One of the challenges I learned during the course of Tammy's illness, that when you deal with an illness like cancer, there's the constant opportunity to fear man. You think, how? Well, it shows itself in various ways when you're battling such an illness. I'm sure this can translate to other situations, but this one is so fresh. One way I saw it challenge Tammy was through the various doctors, nurses, and other medical personnel. Now, keep in mind, she herself was a medical professional. But it changed her outlook on medical professionals when she was in that position. And there was a temptation, not just on her part, but all of us, to fear doctors and nurses and medical professionals. What news would they bring next? I mean, they were the bearers of news. That was tough. And you could fear man. And that's not rational. But that's what we start to think. And so she had to... She had to confront this, and she did so very carefully by Scripture. She repeated to herself over and over verses that would help her face the next thing that would be difficult, that would be usually something that would paralyze us in fear. I watched her defeat several of these kinds of fears over the course of this time. Psalm 111.10 was important. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But the text said if I would pick one text was most special over the course of the year the one that I came back to over and over and over again when I spent time with her, the one she read over and over and over again, the one that's marked up in her Bible, Psalm 27, that helped her with the fear of man. And I hope it helps you. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. 
I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So God promises the coming of Emmanuel to Israel. God promises he is with us all. In the meantime, for Judah, they would witness the demise of the northern kingdom as a reminder of God's justice and truth. Judah would have Israel as their example. It says in verse 17, The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as not have come since that of Ephraim departing from Judah, the king of Assyria. The days of division were terrible for Israel overall. They were much weaker because they were two sections instead of one. But when Emmanuel comes, there will be turmoil. There will be distress for the people of Judah. We see what Jesus brings to Israel when he comes. Jesus' primary opposition wasn't Roman or Gentile, it was Jewish. Jesus' coming will be like the days of the division of the kingdom because his presence will shed light on their apostasy, how they were once God's chosen people. More immediately, there would be a far greater opposition than an alliance between Syria and Israel. Assyria would come, and no one would stop them for long. What this leads us to in the final verses is the forecast of how the north would be taken finally by Assyria, and it's a tragic picture. But what we learn from this, and the the greater principle, you might say, is that it's always the case that God's will will be done. Uh, When we pray for God's will to be done, what we're praying for is that our will would align with what God will do. By saying, may your will be done, we're saying, God, please make us accept your will, because it's going to happen. The real folly about fearing man is how it always betrays us. We think security will come by making peace with human enemies. But all it really does is make us the enemies of God. There's one fate for the enemies of God, and it's judgment. God will always have his way in the end. God will always accomplish his purposes. No man ever thwarts the sovereign hand of God. Moyer, who I've quoted often, says again here, Ahaz may have had every political skill, logic, in the harvest results of diplomatic experience, all the facts of the real world, but when the people of God operate by what stands to reason alone, other than what proceeds from faith, when they seek safety in the resources, the policies, and the powers of the world, the king of Assyria, instead of the king, the Lord Almighty, the things that they trust guarantee their calamity. The chapter closes with a somber reality check about the wheels of judgment that were already set in motion. It was by the year 722, less than 20 years from this time, that the northern kingdom of Israel, who thought an alliance with Syria would protect them from Assyria, would be completely conquered and assimilated, lost forever. Verse 18 and follow tells us the tragic story of God's judgment coming. In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt. He's talking about calling Assyria. To God, he's a fly. To Israel, they're in fear and dread of this fly. The Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on the past, all the pastures 
Remember back to chapter 5, there was that parable about the vineyard and the owner of the vineyard? This is, this is it. This is what's happening. The thorn bushes now. Verse 20. In that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river. Hired is all they are. The instruments of God to come bring discipline with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet. And it will sweep away the beard also. In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and, sh- and honey. And that will be the condition of the place when Jesus comes. It was Assyria then. It would become Babylon. It would become Persia. It would become Greece. It would become Rome. All of them, are, they're all gone. They're just flies that God calls to do his will. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there for all the land will be briars and thorns. You're going to have to hunt for your food is what it says. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. But they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. This is a place once flowing with milk and honey. So the southern kingdom of Judah would watch as the northern kingdom of Israel was overrun by foreign powers. In the end, God will have his way and accomplish his purpose. Man cannot thwart God's movement, so this makes fearing man over God all the more senseless. Crisis gives us opportunity to trust God and see that he is with us. I think you have gathered by now by what I have already said. As many people ask what gave Tammy strength over this last final year on earth, there is a very simple and clear answer, and anyone who knows her well knows it's true. Because of the promises of God's word, she was strengthened in her faith, and she knew very clearly that God was with her. Yes, there's discomfort and pain in these, this process, in crisis. But there was never, there was a never-ending faith. And there was never a wavering of this faith nor was there a moment when she wasn't sure that God was with her. Crisis gives us opportunity to trust God and see that he is with us. Let's bow as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I am sure that there are many people here in the midst of crisis of one sort or another. There are many stresses and strains pushing and pulling at us. There are matters that worry us and cause us great anxiety. There are financial pressures. There are relationship pressures. There are family worries. There are social influences and things that intimidate us personally. They may intimidate us as a church living in an environment that seems to be growing in hostility toward us. Please, O Lord, strengthen our faith by the truths and the promises of your word. In the midst of these crises, give us a deeper faith and trust in you. Cause your spirit to quicken our sense of being your being with us. Make us rejoice because Emmanuel has come and he has saved us from our sins. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.